Good morning, everyone. I'm having an identity crisis here. I can't figure out my the sound engineer, the streaming engineer, the singer, or the speaker this morning. I don't know. All right. Well, great to see everyone. As everyone knows, Swami A is in Florida for another week or so. And uh, you're stuck with me this morning. It's been a while since I've been up here, actually. I was thinking this morning, a couple of months, I think. Anyway, I, I always like to dig into my own bucket of problems and uh, sufferings and <laughs> whatnot and kind of pull out whatever I can uh, in whatever I'm struggling through or working with. And uh, it's been a very interesting couple of months for me. By, by no means, I'll admit to you, uh, has it been peaceful or, or even pleasant, really. It's, it's been a lot of inner struggle, uh, a lot of inner struggle. Uh, from a lot of things, but mostly just a messed up mind, <laughs> really. Um, but I've learned a lot. I've seen a lot and understood a lot uh, about it. Uh, a couple of months ago, I was at a very exciting place. It was when I was talking about storied. Anybody remember that? I would, I would talk a lot about how we're always engaged in our story and identified with our story. But that at this particular moment in time, which is the only moment that exists ever, it never ends and never begins, we talk about that a lot, your story really is not relevant. You are absolutely free in this moment to be whatever you want to be. But it's your commitment to your story, your identification with your story, uh, that often directs how you play out your your troubles and your life, as it were. Hopefully those aren't always synonymous, troubles and life. But uh, So this idea of freedom uh, was, was occurring to me quite a bit. What, what exactly is freedom? Is there such a thing as freedom? Is it, is it even possible for us to have a concept of freedom given our situation? It's one of those words kind of like love, like intelligence, uh, like existence, like consciousness, we have nice handles that we stick on them to say, yeah, we know what that is. You know, we don't trip over it in a sentence. But they're all concepts that when you sit and actually pull them out of the bag and hold them up by themselves and set them on a little podium and walk around it a few times, that you realize you don't know anything about it. You don't know what existence is. How do you define existence, you know, in a meaningful way? Uh, you know, intelligence, okay, cool thing, but how do you define what intelligence is? This artificial intelligence they're creating these days, is that really valid? Is it really intelligence, or is it just taking a look at enough variables and making a choice? Or is that intelligence? Who knows? And this idea of freedom, you know, I question a lot as to whether it's even uh, available to us and where we even came up with the idea uh, since I really can't see, I can't think of or find anything in the relative world that you could hold up as a definition of freedom. There's nothing there. So uh, let me start with, uh, of course, with Hafiz. Uh, this morning he has a nice little poem about fish that sort of plays into this. Not really, but I liked it. The fish and I will chat. Once in a while... The fish and I will chat in a silent language. We look into each other's eyes and smile, and they often say, Hey, Hafiz, we see you know the joy of our existence. We see that you have discovered how meditation can free you from land, from mind, from debt, from alimony. The whole works, and like us, let you carouse all day in the Beloved. So he gives us a few hints in there about how to find the peace, the peace of the fish, the freedom of the fish, as you were, as it were. I've got a few selections of uh, things to, to share this morning. Of course, a lot of it is from karma yoga and jnana yoga. I kind of want to talk about the inherent limitations that prevent us from freedom here, and then talk about how the game that we're playing is actually designed to, to, uh, to cause struggle to cause trouble, that uh, your mind and your body is actually designed uh, to keep you distracted, to keep you engaged. 
And then to look at uh, a few of the uh, Christian scriptures where they kind of bemoan that fact and talk about, we're stuck, what can we do? And then end with looking at a few things uh, that we can uh, use to uh, approach freedom, to approach an ideal uh, that is not readily available to us. So from Karma Yoga, Swami Vivekananda, he lays out a few things here for us to start with. He says, in the external world, the idea of law is the same as in the internal. The expectation that a particular phenomena will be followed by another and that the series will repeat itself, really speaking, therefore, law does not actually exist in nature. Practically, it is an error to say that gravitation exists in the earth and that there is any law existing objectively anywhere in nature. Law is the method, the manner in which our mind grasps a series of phenomena. It is all in the mind. Certain phenomena happening one after another or together and followed by the conviction of the regularity of their reoccurrence thus enabling our minds to grasp the, grasp the method of the whole series and constitute what we call law. So Vivekananda is saying a few things here that are quite interesting. Uh, one is this idea of law, this idea of duty, this idea of expectation, this idea of cause-effect, uh, uh, space-time and causation, uh, that he's, he's first of all telling us, okay, it's not really there. You're given a world and your mind, because of its nature, because of the way it deals with things, uh, defines a set of laws, a set of ways. This is the way things are. But when you take a physics class or a statistics class, they're always talking in terms of probabilities. You know, and I remember telling or asking a, 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 a professor one time, we were doing, I don't remember exactly what the experiment was, but I was always fascinated because they were always so surprising to me, <laughs> which is why I didn't do well in physics. I, was, I asked, so I said, you're telling me that if I take this ping pong ball and drop it over this salad bowl, that there does exist somewhere the probability that it's not going to go into that bowl, that, that it's going to miss that bowl completely. And she straight faced told me, yes, yeah, there does exist a certain probability that that ping pong ball will not be able to drop directly into that salad bowl. Okay, I, I couldn't imagine such a thing. I was like, How's, I know I could do this all day long for several days and it's going to drop in there. But she insists. And then she tried to tell me that the chair was pushing up on my bottom with the same amount of force that I was pushing down on the chair with my bottom. I was like, how is that possible? That chair's not pushing anything. It's staying just like it is whether I sit in it or not. So these concepts, these ideas that we project onto the world around us, they've got some wiggle room. There's, there's some space there. And it's very important in our spiritual life and in our ability to grow to know that these things that we think are real have wiggle room. And to know that their definitions and their laws are a product of our mind and not inherent in the thing in and of itself. It's very important because it's going to make a lot of room for us later on to deal with our shortcomings, to deal with our mistakes, to deal with our inability to move forward. It's going to give us some space to enter an idea that's fundamental to mental health, and that is the idea of grace the idea of forgiveness. And, uh, and then it's going to get us some space to take a look at this tool, this mind that we're using, to see exactly how is it tripping us up? How is it preventing us from having our realization? How is it preventing us from ecstasy and from the joy of existence? Which we see in all of the uh, great sadhus and, and the great uh, the, the incarnations is a matter of, of ecstasy is a matter of great bliss that this life, if it's seen from that one perspective, from that place of truth, is an inextinguishable source of joy and light. Vivekananda goes on to say, the question has been raised as to from whom this universe comes, in whom it rests, and to whom it goes. 
And the answer has been given that from freedom it comes, in bondage it rests, and it goes back to that freedom again. So when we speak of man as no other than the infinite being which is manifesting itself, we mean that only one very small part thereof is man. This body and this mind which we see are only part of the whole, only one spot on the infinite being. This whole universe is only one speck in the infinite being, and all our laws, all our bondages, all of our joys, all of our sorrows, all of our happinesses, and all of our expectations are only within this very small universe. All our progression and digression are within its small compass. So you see how childish it is to expect a continuation of this universe, that creation of our minds, and to expect to go to a heaven, which after all must mean only a repetition of this world that we know, you see at once that it is an impossible and childish desire to make the whole of infinite existence conform to the limited and the conditioned existence which we know. So what he's saying there, the importance of what he's saying there to me, and the way that I was using it and am using it, is a matter of perspective. Part of being stuck is by standing in the same place and insisting on seeing things differently. You can't do that. You have to know that there are other places to stand, other perspectives, other truths, so that you can move a little bit this way and look at it, the problem from this direction, move a little bit this way and look from that direction. You know, when you get down into your own mind and you get stuck in your own space, you get stuck in your own head, that's what I like to call it. When you get stuck in your own head, your, prom your problems seem and appear like concrete, like they're just immovable. When you're in a depression or when you're in a sadness, it's like sitting in the bottom of a bowl. You can't see over the edges of the bowl to the rest of the world. Life is horrible. Life is miserable. I can remember one time having a conversation with a, a man um, in Texas who was going to commit suicide. I was working as a youth minister, actually, in a church there in Dallas. And uh, this man pulls up in the afternoon. I'm, I'm in my office uh, working on some games I'm going to do with the kids. And he comes in and uh, starts just talking to me. Now, I was, a, I was a freshman in college at the time. And this was some guy in his 40s. And he delivered gas to the to uh, the country houses around and he had gotten himself into a situation in his life where he told me that afternoon he says out in my truck is a gun a loaded gun he said I was going to go out and shoot myself and I passed the church and I thought let me stop in one last time to see if I can get an answer <laughs> I'm 18, 19 at the time. What answers do I have for someone in that situation? And with that amount of pressure, I'm on my way to kill myself. If you say the right things, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh my God, how can that happen? So we had this long conversation, kind of digging into finding out what has brought his life to this situation and how to get there. And he talked about being released from, from all of his troubles, all of his temptations, the things that had drawn him into this really dark space. And I asked him, I said, you know, the amount of courage it takes to shoot yourself is significant. That, that's quite a courageous act. And the amount of mental resolution that it takes to decide that you're going to do that is a phenomenal amount of mental resolution. I said, it would seem to me that if you're able to muster that amount of resolution and that amount of courage, that you could do almost anything else in this world aside from suicide. That you should be able to take that courage and go. And I said, if in fact your life is worthless to you, there are lots of people out there for whom it would not be worthless. Go to work and give them your paycheck if you're that unhappy with your life. Quit doing your own housework and go do somebody else's housework. If, in fact, your life is worth nothing to you and you're ready to throw it away, use it. 
not for yourself. Use it completely for someone else or something else. And see where that goes. See where that leads you. You see, it's a matter of perspective. You sit there in, the, in that moment of suicide, you think it's black, I'm weak, I'm beaten, I can't do anything in my life, I can't change, I can't get past these temptations. I've, you know, he was a situation, for him it was a, a situation where he just was in some super bad behaviors and was cheating on many people in his life and couldn't get things under control, couldn't, couldn't at all, and had come to hate himself. And so just that idea... Of, of taking a different twist, abstracting your situation, saying, look, okay, let's forget about the feelings. Let's forget about that stuff right now. Let's look at the actual situation. Let's see this resolution. Let's see this courage. Let's call it what it is. Let's not deal with whether I should or shouldn't or whether it's right or wrong and what the payment's going to be if I do it. Is there heaven? Is there hell? Put aside all of those things. Put aside everything in your mind for a moment and look at your life as fresh. Try and see this moment as the only existing moment, the eternal moment, the one that you're always going to inhabit, that it's this moment that you're going to die in. It's this moment that you were apparently born in. So take this moment that has no beginning and no end, and take it like the record, like a point of the... Of the are you old enough to have record players and LPs and needles and know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I was sharing this yesterday with somebody, and they were just looking at me like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> so on a record player, you know, you've got your needle sitting in a singular spot. The needle does not, well, it does move slowly, ever so imperceptibly toward the center of the record, but it's just right there. And if you turned off the record player, even if the speakers were on, there's no sound. No sound would happen, because in that moment, there's only tranquility. There's no change. There's no movement. There's only peace, only contentment, only being. Everything is aligned. Everything is balanced. When you turn on that record player and things begin to move, then there's noises and sounds. Now, the needle is not identified with any of its music. You can put Beethoven on there. You could put Metallica on there. You can put... John Denver on there. You could put anybody on there. The music is just going to play because the needle is free from attachment. And the needle doesn't insist on making any noises when it's not being moved, when the, when the LP is not moving under it. So your life at this moment, take that for a second. Treat this moment like an eternal moment. Forget the song that's being played. Forget your song. Can you enjoy the freedom of this moment, the fact that there is nothing to be done because there's only this moment. There is no tomorrow. There's only this moment. When you're in tomorrow, it will have become this moment. So take this moment and remove all of the things that are outside, that are outside of it, all the things that are causing you stress, all the things that have defined you as weak or defined you as old or defined you as failed or defined you as successful, all of these things that you're holding to define yourself in this moment, give yourself permission to set them down for a moment. Know that they're only in your mind. Know that you're free. And at this moment, you're standing on the top of a sphere. You can, you can fall off any direction. You don't have to fall off in one particular direction. You can always make a new decision. You can always be free to think differently. You can always change without reason who you are and what you are. Because all of that weight, all of that struggle and stress is only in the box of your head. And it does not belong to you personally. You only, for whatever reason, just have to look through it at the rest of the world for a lifetime. He's saying that, that you see at once that it's impossible and childish to desire to make the whole of infinite existence conform to the limited and conditioned existence that we know. So he's saying it's foolish. It's foolish for you to sit there and define yourself in this way, to define this set of problems and this set of identities, and then to project them into the world and universe at large. 
He says, can't you see that that's childish? Can't you see that's, that's pointless? That's very narrow-minded. It's interesting because we get caught up in this situation all the time. In the book of Romans, which is a letter to the Romans written by St. Paul uh, to the church there, he, he, he get, opens up a little bit about his own struggle. And he says, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do that I do, I do that I do not want to do. And this I keep on doing. <laughs> you know, so it's like, and who doesn't have that experience, you know? It's like, I'm just coming out of a radical little diet that I had. And I tell you, every morning, that, that coffee machine downstairs, I never realized how loud it was, what a gurgle it did, and how bright that light was on the front of it, because I wasn't allowed to have any, you know, for that 22 days. And I would sit there and walk by that machine every morning, and I'd be like, nope, not going to do it. Nope, not going to do it. Not going to do it. Of course, after the, I think it was on the 26th day that it beat me, and I had a cup of coffee. But, but technically, the diet ended on the 22nd day, so... I went four days beyond the limit there. <laughs> but this idea of being caught in a world, caught in a mental definition of our reality that limits us and then propels us down uh, a, 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 an alley that we don't want to go down. Now, I wanted to take this apart. I'm reading a book called The Happiness Hypothesis, uh, which is by a Dr. Esselstein. And if you're interested in how the mind works and, and how emotions work and all that, it's a fantastic book. And uh, he says that there's several divisions in our physical makeup that keep us battling. They're part of the design. The body is meant to battle. He said there's several definitions. The first one, he says, is your mind and your body. Two different things. Your mind wants to get up. You know, the alarm has gone off. It knows you have to go to work. You have to do all this and that and the other, so you need to get up. The body, not so much. Nah, I really like warm sheets. I really like big pillows. Where's the other one? Oh, there it is. <laughs> Pull it in. I'll get up in 10 minutes, right? So you've got that constant struggle. So you've got that struggle, that division. That's something real. That's something we have to deal with between your mind and your body. Then there's another division between your right brain and your left brain. Now, this one really fascinates me. I've been reading a lot of stuff on this over the years. It started out as an, uh, reading a book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, which I like to share which if you haven't read it and you're interested in, in uh, letting out your inner artist, you must not miss that book. Anyway, there was a study done in the 1950s by a Dr. Gazaniga. And uh, he was studying uh, patients that had had their two hemispheres of their brain separated uh, because they, were, uh, they had that uh, epilepsy and they had severe, uh, what do they call those, uh, Seizures. And so they split, they, they, a doctor decided that if he split the two sides of the brain, stopped them from communicating with each other, that that would uh, lower the experience of seizures. And it worked. It worked very well. Uh, but it had some side effects. The person was able to actually carry on a normal life. They were able to function as a human being. But they had some very interesting things that they began to find out. I'm going to read one of these studies to you. So uh, you have to, the first things I guess you have to know is that your left side of your brain manages the right side of your body, and the right side of your brain manages the left side of your body. So these, uh, these eyes, these ears, these arms, everything over here is managed over here, and vice versa. And it's like that in all mammals. They don't know why. And uh, so you've got two halves to your brain. Now, one half is linear language logic. Boom, 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 boom. That's the side that we, in Western culture anyway, highly develop. All of our schooling is built, nowadays probably 100% of schooling is built around the left side of the brain. All of it is logic and sequentially oriented, language oriented. The other side of the brain is all spatially relationship feeling oriented. So, and it doesn't have language, it doesn't have logic, it doesn't have, it doesn't think in linear ways, it thinks in relative ways. How are these things related? How are these things existing together? Okay, so you've got these two things. Now, Gazaniga, he's the guy who did the, who's studying them, he says he flashed different pictures to the two hemispheres of these people's brains. So he put a divider down the middle of their face, 
and on this side he would flash a picture on a screen, and on this side he would flash a different picture on the screen. On one occasion he flashed a picture of a chicken claw on the right, and a picture of a house and a car covered in snow on the left. The patient was then shown an array of pictures and asked to put the one that that goes with what he had seen. Now the patient's right hand pointed to the picture of a chicken because he had seen a chicken claw, right? But the left hand pointed to a snow shovel. When the patient was asked to explain his two responses, he did not say, I have no idea why my left hand is pointing at a shovel. It must be something you showed my right brain. That would have been the right answer. He didn't say that. He knew that, but he didn't offer that as the explanation. This is what's interesting. Instead, the the left hemisphere instantly made up a plausible story. The patient said without hesitation, oh, that's easy. The chicken claw goes with the chicken, and you need a shovel to clean out the chicken shed. People will readily fabricate reasons to explain their own behavior. This is called confabulation. Now, this is a very fascinating situation. It means that you will readily make up justifications for your actions and for your ideas and the way that you think. In the book, he goes on and gives another explanation. He says, somebody will show you a painting. Do you like it? Yes or no? Yes, I like it. Okay. Immediately you know whether you like it or not. Then he asks them, what are the reasons that you like it? He says, this is where the confabulator in your left brain, in the, in the language department, the confabulator turns on. It just starts making stuff up. I like the composition. The colors are pretty nice. All of this is after the fact. You know, this is all, all later. And he's saying that's why it's so hard to win an argument with most people. Because most people have an idea already in their mind. They know it immediately. It's not because it's a product of logic and thinking and reasoning. It's just sort of there. There's a third division we're going to get into that explains it. And then he says, when you're actually arguing with each other, you both, in real time, are confabulating the reasons that you think what you think. And if you do it enough times, it becomes true for you. But he says what's really going on is another, defini- another definition, another division. You have two brains, one built on top of another, it appears, according to the psychologists, people doing the studies anywhere. There's the reptilian brain, the old brain, the brain that we've had from the very beginning of our evolution. And this brain is very good at taking in sensory input and making decisions about it. And this part of the brain also is non, uh, what would you call it, uh, uh, not controlled. It's automatic. You know? It's the thing that you're hungry. I'm hungry. So it tells you you're hungry. Uh, it's the thing that uh, tells you you're cold. The thing that is constantly sending signals. And if you make a goal, like uh, I'm, I'm going to uh, do whatever, it's the brain that, it, that comes back and constantly queries the state of, of being. Have you eaten enough? Have I drank enough? Have I slept enough? You know, it's always querying those things. On top of this is the human portion of us that was added or has evolved later. It's the frontal lobe. And this is the part of us that makes us human. It's the logical, thinking, uh, creative uh, aspect of us that is voluntary, where we can do the things that we, we can do the things that we want to do. So, and these two sides of the brain will often argue with each other and often cause problems. And one of the problems that it causes is that because if you, if you make an external goal, like I'm going to lose weight, you know, this part of the brain can be very helpful because it will always constantly check on that and keep you reminded of that. And the other part of your brain is free to make the choices that are helping that part of the brain reach your your stated goal. But when you make mental goals, it works against you. Because if you say to yourself, I'm not going to think of a white bear, the, the, the uncontrolled part of the brain is going to sit there and constantly query, are you thinking about a white bear? Are you thinking about a white bear? Are you thinking about a white bear? And by golly, every time it does that, what are you doing? You're thinking of a white bear, right? So you're in conflict with each other. And we run into this situation 
all the time in our spiritual life, where we decide, I'm going to be a nicer person. I'm going to get up earlier. You know, I'm going to meditate more. I'm going to do all of these things. I'm, I'm going to be more pure, you know, whatever it is. And then your mind is constantly interjecting, constantly bringing your mind back to the things that you don't want to be thinking about, that you don't want to be doing, all the old stuff that you're trying to leave behind. So these mental goals, these spiritual goals that we set up for ourselves immediately set you up for failure because the, the lower mind, without thinking about it, you know, is just going to keep interjecting your old patterns and your old ideas as a matter of measure as to how you're doing and what needs to be done. So this is where we learn one of the tricks that Takor shares with us, that when you make a mental goal, a spiritual goal, you don't state it as a negative. I'm not going to do this anymore. You state it in the positive. That's one of my favorite things about the order, actually, when I didn't know it when I joined, I only knew it when I took my vows, that all the vows are stated in the positive. There's not, renunciation is stated in, in, in a positive way. It's all about going toward the beloved. It's all about going toward the ideal. There is no talk of what you're leaving behind. There is no, the emphasis is not on what is being put away. The eyes are being put on what you're going toward. And so it's very important in our spiritual life and in our renunciation that we not keep our eyes on the things that we're walking away from, the things that we're leaving behind. I think Takor's example is if you want to get a, a, something from a child, I can't remember what the objects were, but we will use a scissors. The child has a pair of scissors. If you go and grab the scissors out of the child's hand, it's going to be like you took his own mother away from him. I don't want the scissors. Give me the scissors. Right? He says, what do you do? You go and you hand him a red ball and simultaneously take the scissors away. So now he's got a cool red ball. The scissors have just kind of disappeared and everything is fine. You, as a spiritual seeker, have to learn to treat your mind in that same way, to be successful. You can't talk about what you're not going to do and set up negative mental goals that are then going to cause you to fail. If you want to be purer, it's not done by not thinking of the opposite sex or not thinking about situations. It's about thinking about other things that are enjoyable, other things that are healthy, other things that are positive for your well-being and not, not countering that well-being, okay? So it's one of those fundamental tricks that are very important in there. Gazinga says, he says that this language center in the left side of our brain, going back just a little bit, is that as the interpreter module, its job is to give a running commentary on whatever the self is doing, even though the module has no access to real causes or motives for the behavior, the interpreter module is good at making up explanations but not at knowing that it has done so. <laughs> now, I read something very similar from Sri Nishragatata Maharaj when he was in there. He was saying, he talks a lot, and I've shared a lot in the past, about this idea that, that this moment alone exists. It's, it has never ended, it's never begun, it simply always is. That the idea of past, present, and future are concepts of mind alone. And he puts it in the same category here. Your mind has created those categories to explain its interpretation of what it's experiencing, of, what, of what's going on. And he says that uh, the mind will make up a story to explain the present moment regardless of its truth and will not be aware that it's doing so. So how do you do that? You know, I'm going to use that same, that same explanation because I like it. It seems to work. You know, I remember in high school planning to go with my friends to Caro's on Friday night for dinner. When Friday night actually came, I ended up at the movies with two of my buddies and none of the other friends, and we weren't at Caro's. Now, through that whole time, I would have told you I have made these plans. I am, this, this was my plan. Even on Friday night, as I'm sitting in Caro's and not, or at the movies and not at Caro's, I was like, yeah, I planned to go to the movies tonight. You know, and then if you challenge it, then you start breaking up. Oh yeah, well, yeah, that's true. And so then you come to realize that you really didn't plan anything, that you just kept changing a thing you called the plan until what was going to happen happened. <laughs> and then you felt like you were in charge. Your mind 
is constantly maintaining a narrative that keeps you in charge, that keeps you as the cause of your life. And that narrator will lie to you continuously to make that true, to explain this moment to you, to explain the way that it is. Now, if you're not aware of that, if you haven't read this guy's book and seen it and, and started to look at your own life and get kind of a giggle out of how true it is, how strangely true it is, you know, that we make up this idea of ourself to explain everything and it's completely fabricated. We've been lying to ourselves for our whole life, you know. To break that is rather difficult. He says that this moment alone is real. That your mind, if, if in fact, he says, for the sake of conversation, if in fact you could take a slice of this moment, so take a slice, paper-thin slice, micro-thin slice, this is this moment, everything in the universe is this way. He says, and even if there was a past, he says, because now that slice simply doesn't exist anymore. It's not that now it's in the past. That slice just doesn't exist anymore. But we'll keep a copy of it for conversation's sake. Now take another one. He says, if you take those two slices of the moment and try to line them up with each other, not one atom in the universe will be in the same place. There will be nothing similar between those two pieces. Nothing will line up. He says, but your mind will configure a story that explains the transition from this piece to this piece and create a relationship between these two pieces that have no relationship to one another. And that story is Maya. That story is the story that your record needle is playing for you, that you're listening to. And that is the method of hypnotization that we're suffering from that convinces us that we're stuck in these small places, that we're stuck in ways of thinking, we're stuck in systems of value, we're stuck in series of relationships, we're stuck in jobs, we're stuck in houses, we're stuck with bills, we're stuck with bad decisions. That story is the only thing keeping you stuck. You can walk away at any time. And you say that and immediately like, but, 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 that's why it's tough. We believe the but, 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 buts. But they're just as unreal. It takes that courage. It takes that courage. It takes that resolution, the two things that the, somebody driven to the point of suicide has. <laughs> Someone for whom it has gotten so bad has the two most important tools that it takes to change. There's an irony. That when you're pushed all the way to the edge of giving it up, you still have the two most important tools. You've got your courage and you've got your resolution. To overcome any one of the buts that stand in your way, administer your courage and administer your resolution. And you can, you can change any and everything. That's what it is to be free. In this idea of not playing your story, I remember I was... What about that? I'll tell you. I was taking a shower, right? I'm showering in the morning and I'm sitting there trying to remind myself, okay, look, this moment is pure and free and beautiful and divine. There is no past. There is no future. There's only now. And so I try and be fully present and feel the water, you know, and the nice warm shower. I'm like, oh, this is really great. This is really great. Okay, so all of the things that you imagine for what this day is going to be is not real. This day can be anything. And the funny thing that I couldn't get past in myself is that any time I thought that I'm absolutely free, my first question was always, what do I want to do? I couldn't just enjoy freedom. That's our trouble. I immediately slap a bondage on it. I'm free. What do I want to do? The problem is that you don't want to do anything. That unchanging self, which is the real part of you, just loves that infinite potential of the moment. It loves the fact that anything can be anything at any time. It loves the, 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 the depth and the, the, the wonder of existence. It loves being, just being, just emanating itself. And what happens when you're free is you get to emanate freely. 
It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. They're all changing all the time. But if you try and base your freedom on them, you can't be free. You can't. When you, when you have a moment that's absolutely free, when you're able to put your desire aside, that's freedom. That's bliss. That's where ecstasy is. That's where the joy of life happens. That's where freedom exists. And that's where the great sages live. They live in that space. They don't get dragged into the question, what do I want? Because what happens when you're dragged into that question? You see, the, the, the scriptures and the sages have all told us that you're not a body. This isn't you. This body has changed so much in the years that you've been walking it around. You know, Since it was two and now that it's 55, oof, that's a jump. But two for 55, there's, there's nothing in this body that I'm riding today that is the same as the body that I was riding when I was two. So how can I say that that's who I am? You know, There's nothing there to share. The mind, the sages tell us you are not the mind, which is very important, makes you distinct from it. It removes you from its power unless you identify with it. All of the power the mind has over you is the power you've divided and given to the mind. And you can take it back at any moment. There is no entity in the mind that's powerful. There is no entity in your mind that can make you do anything. You always have all of the power, but you have to stop identifying with what the mind is saying. You have to stop identifying with what the mind is laying out for you and put another idea there. Come up with a different vision. Come up with a different idea because you are separate and apart from the mind and from the body. This will free you from, from a mind which is just going to constantly keep you running around a rat maze. Uh, our, our writer, Mr. Esselstein, he says, our brains are like rat brains. We're wired so that food and sex give us little bursts of dopamine, the neurotransmitter that is the brain's way of making us enjoy the activities that are good for the survival of our genes. So you get that little, that little bit of ecstasy through the senses to keep you going in that direction, which we all know is very unhealthy. That's, that's where drug addiction comes from. That's where all the addictions come from. Whatever you're addicted to, everybody's addicted to something. Whatever it is, just some things are socially not acceptable and some things everybody shares and so we don't care. Our addiction to money, our addiction to comfort, our addiction to getting our way, our addiction to our opinions, our addiction to the importance of our opinions. Uh, you know, these are all things, these are all means of identifying with mind, which always leads to addiction, which always gets us stuck. And we have to learn to control it. He did a separate, ex separate study that's talked about in this book, The Happy, Happiness Hypothesis. He says that uh, they took a bunch of elementary school kids, one at a time, and they, they sat them in a room, and the teacher told them, okay, you can either have one marshmallow right now, here, or you can have two marshmallows when I get back. So I'm going to leave the room and I'll leave this marshmallow here. If you want it, you can have it. But if you want two of them, just wait till I get back. All right. So they did only about, uh, roughly only about 22% or so, I don't remember the exact number. It's a very low number of students actually were able to discipline themselves to wait to get two marshmallows. Now they followed these kids for the next 20 years. They found a direct correlation between the kids that were able to wait for two marshmallows and their success in life. All of those kids performed better in school, got better, uh, moved into, got better, uh, uh, got into better colleges, and ended up making more money, or which you know was an easy thing to measure. So they measure that uh, in their life. So it goes all the way back, you know, and he says. The kids, they asked the kids at the time, why did you wait for the second one, first of all? Oh, because I want it. I like two marshmallows. How did you do it? Every one of them, their method was to not think about the marshmallow. To think about other things that they enjoyed. And that 
broke that voice we were talking about. Remember that measuring part of the silent of the uncontrolled mind that keeps querying, you know, keeps asking. If you keep thinking about the marshmallow and not eating the marshmallow, that mind's going to drive you crazy until you eventually give in. It's like a two-year-old, you know. Eventually, you're going to give the two-year-old a donut just to shut him up, even though it's his sixth one of the morning. <laughs> you know, it's like that's that's how it goes. And with our mind, if we don't fight the mind in the proper way, as a friend as a child, as a disciple, if we don't treat it with respect, but in, 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 a, in an, a, an emotionally mature way, which is to offer it the better and to keep the idea of the better in the mind and to not take from it the lesser and keep reminding it of the lesser. You know, because it will just keep querying until you're just literally driven crazy. To acquire freedom, we have to get beyond the limitations of this universe. It cannot be found here. You cannot be free here. Now, it's funny that we live in the land of the free and you can't be free, but I think if you think about that for a while, you become very convinced (laughs) that the freedom that we've put as an ideal is unattainable because this world only exists because of limitation and restriction. All of this, all of our definitions of self only exist because of limitation and restriction. That's one of my favorite things that Vivekananda points out. He says, this personality that you love so much is nothing but a bundle of restrictions and limitations. Every attribute that you say you have, that you like, is a restriction because it means you don't have or like the other attributes. So you're restricting yourself to a subset everything that you do. And in this universe, that, that is what causes our problems, our attachments to our limitations and our restrictions. We hurt each other with them and other people hurt us with them. You know, I was talking to a young woman yesterday who was challenging this idea. She says, well, what, why can't I just be good to everybody? I says, well, you, you can be good for, but to everybody, but you can only do that by renouncing the particular everybody's that you're choosing to be nice to inside. I said, when you finally meet that partner that you're going to marry and spend your life with, that seems like a very positive thing. But there's 7 billion people in the world, and you've just rejected (laughs) 599,999,000, all of them don't get to be your husband or your wife. So you've you've caused all of those people to suffer and you've made this one person very happy. (laughs) That's the struggle, you see. That's the challenge. This game has been stacked against us. No place can give us that freedom because all such places would be within our universe. It is limited by space, limited by time, limited by causation. There may be places that are more ethereal than this earth of ours where enjoyments may be keener, But even those places must be in the universe and therefore in bondage to a law. So we have to go beyond. And real religion begins where this little universe ends. These little joys, these little sorrows, and the knowledge of things all ends here. And reality begins. Now where does that universe begin? Where does that universe exist? Immediately we place it outside of ourself. The reason we do that is because we identify with mind. And mind is taking in all of the senses from the body. And so the mind is in the universe. And the universe is around the mind. The moment that you have the experience of not identifying with mind, you will have the distinct feeling and understanding of the entire universe collapsing into a point that is in you, that you surround the universe. You are the container of all that you see, hear, and do. Taste, touch, and smell, whatever else is in there. That this universe is within you. You are infinite. You are ever free and ever pure. You are ever free, meaning that you have no desire because everything is in you. Every possibility is in you already. So in that freedom, don't make that first mistake. What shall I do? (laughs) Don't do anything. 
Watch it all happen. Watch love be expressed. Watch intelligence unfold. And do it comfortably from this wonderful seat of existence. See it. That's the way to freedom. That's the way to bliss. To know that all things work together for good. That God is everywhere present and always perfect. Paul later on is writing to a church in Corinth, in Greece. He says that the Lord had given him a particular thorn in the side. Some, some sin, quote, that he doesn't mention. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. A little little bit of a paradox there for you to think about. What's he actually saying here? You know, that as long as you have an ego identity, as long as you're living in a body with a mind and calling it yourself, it's better to be weak in that sense. In the sense that you know that God's grace is enough for you. That there is no limit to that love, no limit to the chances you're going to get, no limit to the materials you're going to get. I've offered to you in order to come to your realization he says, and, and to be weak in that means to, to know, to, to, to lift yourself out of mind. Say, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, the mind is weak. The, that direction, the ego is never going to win. Never going to win. So I won't boast about anything that I'm identified with. I won't boast about how well I'm doing, how successful I am, how disciplined I am, how much practice I do, how much money I make, how many friends I have, how beautiful my wife is. You know, how beautiful my husband is. We won't, we won't delight in those things. Because all of those things bring weakness. Because they bring the whole world of judgment. They bring the whole world of confusion. They bring on all of these arguing divisions of the body and the mind into play. He says, karma yoga shows the process, the secret and the method of doing it to the best advantage. What does it say? Work incessantly, but give up all attachment to work. All attachment to work means don't see it as your work. Don't tie any strings to yourself. It's just being done. Why am I doing this? For the sure bliss of the experience of doing it. For the sure worship of my beloved. For the sure play of the spirit. You know, I'm doing it staying out of mind staying out of body and all of the strings of attachment and division and restriction that it's going to try and tie me to by giving reasons to everything that's happening. That chances are it's making up on the fly anyway. They really don't make that sense. Work incessantly, but give up all attachment to work. Do not identify yourself with anything. Hold your mind free. All this that you see, the pains, the miseries, are but the necessary conditions of this world. Poverty and wealth, happiness, all of them are but momentary. They do not belong to our real nature at all. Our nature is far beyond misery, far beyond happiness, beyond every object of the sense, beyond the imagination. And yet we must go on working all the time. Misery comes through attachment not through work. Another important final clue there for us in working in our spiritual life. We're working from a place of freedom, from a place of already having all that we are seeking. Our work is to be done with no attachment, no I in there. We do it purely as worship, purely freely, like that. And when misery comes, don't look at what you're doing it's not what you're doing that's making you miserable. It's coming from an attachment. Start discriminating through the mind to find out what that attachment is. You know? It's very good for like if you're, if you're laying on your bed on a Saturday afternoon and you've got to mow the lawn. You know, like, ugh. Quickly pick up that tablet and start another game of solitaire, you know. <laughs> do, do, do. Keep yourself pleasant. 
Because why? Because you've made a fundamental mistake. You're thinking it's the work that's making you misery. Mowing the lawn's going to make me miserable. I'm just going to sit here and play games and not think about it by playing solitaire. You've thought that work or that your condition, that, that the description of your day is the thing that's making you miserable. It's not the description or the circumstance of your moment that makes you miserable or happy. It's your attachments inside to what you think would make you happier or what would make you more distracted or what would give you what you're attached to. Let go of the attachment, not of the work that you need to do. Let go of the definition of yourself and not the circumstances of the self. You can be happy in this moment just by saying, I'm happy in this moment. Now the mind is going to immediately put up a flag. Whoa, 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 you can't be happy without a reason. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Watch. You can't be free with, without paying your bills. Watch. Yes, I can. <laughs> Watch this. <laughs> you know, Be in the moment. Find your freedom in what you are. Let all of this detach from you. See the beautiful faces. See the beautiful colors. See the beautiful compositions. When you feel the stress, feel the beautiful stress. You know, when you feel the fear, feel that beautiful fear. But feel it from the, from the, from the seat in a movie house. You're sitting there watching a horror movie. We pay for that. <laughs> to be terrified. We pay for it. So there is beauty in terror. We pay for a movie that talks about poverty. We pay for movies that put us in, a, in one bad relationship after another. We pay for all of that thrill because it's not the thing itself that's bringing us misery. It's attachments. And when we know it's somebody else and something else, then we can just sit back and enjoy it. So learn from that. Your movie of your life, the song that's playing under your needle at this moment, is arbitrary, but it's beautiful. Find that space, find that perspective within yourself that will allow what is to be beautiful without needing to change it. That's your fort. That's where you stand to fight this war. That's where you find your victory and your bliss and your ecstasy and your joy of life and above all, your beloved. So be free. There's at least 19 more paragraphs to read, but let's take a few moments just to think about these things. Hafiz says, you have done well in this contest of madness. You were brave in that holy war. You have all the honorable wounds of one who has tried to find love where the beautiful bird does not drink. May I speak to you like we are close and that like we are locked away together? Once I found a stray kitten and I used to soak my fingers in warm milk. It came to think I was five mothers on one hand. Wayfarer, why not rest your tired body? Lean back and close your eyes. Come morning, I will kneel by your side and feed you. I will so gently spread open your mouth and let you taste something of my sacred mind and my sacred life. 
Surely there is something wrong with your ideas of God. Oh, surely there is something wrong with your ideas of God, if you think that our beloved would not be at least this tender. <laughs>